0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, your people, come before you today, Lord, asking that your spirit would move amongst us, asking, Lord, that as we seek to be those who follow you, that you would comfort us and correct us and give us your strength that we need today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This has been a discouraging season to be a Christian in the West. There have been layers upon layers of brokenness, of evil that have come up in church life. The media seems full of story after story of such things and it's often difficult to process. For instance, I know like many of you that I was heartbroken regarding the recent third party report of sexual abuse in the SBC. In the Southern Baptist Convention. Everyone knew that something was brewing, but no one knew quite how bad it was going to be. Attorney and advocate Rachel Den Hollander in an interview with Russell Moore said, it is a massive report and there is so much to grieve and lament over. It found a consistent pattern of harassing and intimidating survivors and attempting to silence advocates. It found a very concerted effort to resist sexual abuse reform and found a continued cover-up at times of sexual abuse cases and a refusal to report, allowing predators to go from church to church without any effort being made to identify or stop them. It found some new allegations of abuse in leadership, which again, As much as I would like to say those things are stunning and shocking, for those of us who have been immersed in this world, it wasn't. It's difficult to wrap our minds around this level of abuse and cover-up. And yet, none of us, no one, can point their fingers at the Southern Baptists or the Roman Catholics alone. This kind of abuse at the hands of spiritual leaders seems to be everywhere. We've seen examples of such abuse in our own denomination, and over the past few years, it feels like we just see example after example of the religious leaders that we've looked to falling, being exposed as abusers, as wolves, and it's difficult to stomach. And yet I wonder, is this inevitable are we sinners destined to sin, to harm, to abuse, to manipulate, and to lie? Is this what the body of Christ must inevitably look like? Given too much freedom, would we all become Ravi Zacharias or Bill Hybels, two of the most well-known, prevalent Christian leaders who have been exposed for their grooming and their abusing of victims, not to mention their covering up of their sins, of their crimes? Is this what the church must be? And Paul answers in our text this morning from Galatians with a definitive no. No, as followers of Jesus, as those who are baptized into the family of God, who are filled with the spirit of the living God, no, we are not hopeless in the face of our wickedness. Paul writes that for freedom Christ has set us free Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Ravi's problem from a spiritual perspective was not that he had too much freedom. It was that he had forfeited his freedom. Paul would have looked at Ravi and said, you were set free in Christ from your sin and from its power over you. Why have you again become enslaved? Why have you become controlled by your sinful desires? These words of Paul here in Galatians are part of a stinging rebuke of the church in Galatia, who rather than understanding and standing firm in their freedom, standing firm in the finished work of Christ, rather than recognizing that they are already fully loved and accepted by God through their baptism into Christ, they are being persuaded to return Or to turn to the law. They are being persuaded to take off the easy yoke of Christ and instead put on the crushing yoke of self-reliance, of self-assurance, of self-salvation. And is it fair though to compare the Galatians and their temptation to return or to turn instead to the law? Is it fair to compare that temptation and that sin with the abuse of a spiritual leader. I think it is. I think it is, because what, what is it that would compel the Galatians to turn to the law? What is it, why would the Galatians choose to act out of their own flesh as opposed to the Holy Spirit given to them? Why might they do this? Because they believed a lie. They believed the lie that there was life to be found outside of Christ. They believed the lie that in their own strength, in their own efforts, in their own understanding, they could lay a hold of a more abundant life, of a more satisfying life than that which they already had in Christ. Is this not... At its root, the exact same temptation that comes upon the religious leader who seeks out power and then uses that power to take instead of to give, to harm rather than to heal, to abuse rather than to protect. Or as Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller puts it, the sin that is underneath all sins, the motive for our disobedience, is always a lack of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. The sins may be very different but the root is the same. This is the flesh that Paul is talking about in our text this morning. It is not our literal flesh and blood bodies but it is that part of us that is bent towards sin. The part of us that believes to some degree or another that in sexual immorality, in impurity, in debauchery, in idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, there is life to be found. It is the part of us that believes that if we could, just, if we could have just a few of these things maybe then we would be satisfied. And yet, as many of us know all too well, as I know all too well, these things will not leave us satisfied. No, the acts of the flesh destroy us. The actions and the lifestyles condemned here in verses 16 through 21, they wreak havoc on creation. They wreak havoc on our minds, they wreak havoc on our hearts on our very souls, and they wreak havoc on our community. And I think we have to keep the community in mind because the community is what Paul had in mind. It's not as obvious in our English translations, but it is so clear that Paul, every time he says you, he's not speaking to you, the individual Galatian believer, but you all, you all, the church in Galatia. In other words his warnings about the flesh and about returning to a yoke of slavery are not primarily about you the individual but us the people of God. And so we don't need to and we don't need to look far to see the ways that these sins idolatry, sexual immorality, jealousy, etc can ruin relationships, can ruin community marriages, families, and friendships. The, f- the flesh is uncreation at work in our midst. It's uncreation in us and in us as a group. And so again though, I ask the question, are we destined, are we destined to repeat the sins of our fathers and our mothers? Are we destined to repeat the sins of those around us. Must we as clergy inevitably abuse? Must you as husbands and wives inevitably fall into the endless strife that is so many of our marriages? Must we all inevitably ruin a friendship due to political factions and enmity? In Paul's own words, must we all bite and devour? Or Or is there hope for the church? Is there hope for you and for me and for our community? And if the spirit of the living God is with us and in us, then certainly there is hope. Certainly there is hope for all of us who have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, have been clothed with Christ. Because that is the spirit's desire for us, that we might be made more and more into the image of Christ, Christ who understood the depth of His Father's love, and who in turn poured out His life for others, Christ who by the power of the Spirit lived a life of pure love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Spirit is working in our lives, to draw us into the Father's love, to make us into the image of Christ, so of course, there is hope. It is for freedom that we have been set free. And yet, this begs for me, and I'm guessing for you, the question, what are we to do then with those in our midst who look a lot more fleshy than fruitful? If the Spirit is working, what does that mean? What does it mean when I, in my own life, recognize that I look a lot more fleshy than fruitful? Well, I think to answer this question, to to grapple with this, we have to acknowledge two, two realities that are at work here for Paul. First, Paul is pointing out and reminding us that it is the fruit of the Spirit, that we need the Spirit that it is he who will make us into the image of Christ, not we ourselves. And yet the second reality is that we can certainly affect the harvest. Well, what do I mean? Well, listen again to how Paul speaks in our passage. He writes that we have been set free, but that's followed by a warning, a warning that we can again submit to a yoke of slavery The prison doors can be swung open, the debts erased, we're free to go, and we walk right out and into a new cell. This was the story of Israel, and I know this is true because this is my story. Christ met me at a very young age. He set me free. I can still remember the night that I recognized, wow, I am fully loved by God right now. I remember walking out of the room that, I, that, that, that like dawned on me, that, that finally broke through, feeling as light as air. And yet still then, my, my years of high school and, and um, young adulthood were riddled with sexual sin and pornography. I was enslaved. I had been set free and I had again submitted to a yoke of slavery. And I'm, I'm assuming that many of you know what this feels like as well. How does this happen? Well, sadly and ironically, Ravi Zacharias once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. It's one thing to know all of this. And it's much harder for this, to, this truth to sink in and for us to remember this, to, to heed this warning. This is why Paul calls us to stand firm in our freedom. To resist the lies that say there is a better way of life than what Christ is offering you. And how are we to do this? How are we to stand firm and remain free? Well, he tells us, he says that we are to live by the Spirit to be guided by the Spirit. The lie that the Galatians faced was one in which they were thrust back upon themselves, back upon their own efforts whereby they could earn favor with God and with men. And yet Paul knew the truth that if that's our approach, if that's the way we go, is to just take this back upon ourselves, then we will look more like the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. Despite our own efforts and intentions, we will fall short of real fruitfulness. So what does it really look like then to be guided by the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit? Well, what does it look like, to use Kevin's analogy from two weeks ago, to be a sailboat that's not just sitting in the harbor, but one that has its sail lifted and is being propelled forward by the life-transforming Spirit of God? What does that really look like? Well, walking by the Spirit, being guided by the Spirit, it's about actively grounding ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, our longings, our day-to-day habits in God. It's about realigning our heads and our hearts and our hands with who He is and with His loving design for the world. And we do this, we we can do this, we can walk by the Spirit when we're in community. The community that acts as the tangible hands and feet of Christ. Which is why we need together, gather together weekly to remember, to encounter the Lord together and to worship him. It's why we need deep and real friendships with our sisters and brothers. I can't tell you, uh, I can't even find the words to express just how blessed Jess and I have been by our community group here at Ascension. We've seen the guiding of the Spirit moving in that group, making us more like Christ. And you know, I can see it in individuals' lives, but really when it's so clear, when it's such a beautiful witness to God's goodness, is when we're together. It's when, it's when you see us loving one another as a community, when we're going out of our way to listen and to pray for one another, when we're going out of our way to remember each other and the important things going on in each other's lives, when we're picking each other up from the airport at two in the morning or we're helping one another move, we're watching one another's children, we're providing meals to the sick, we're welcoming the newcomer, we're shouldering the burdens of the downcast, and we're rejoicing with those who have received good news. That is when you see the Spirit of God so clearly at work in his people. That is what it looks like to be guided by the Spirit. And another way that we're guided by the Spirit, and again, this is not, this is ideally in community, is through spiritual disciplines. These spiritual disciplines, I love how Pastor Rich Valotis, a pastor in New York City, puts it. He says, no spiritual discipline can make God love you It's too late for that. God already loves you, but the spiritual disciplines help us to live into God's love and to offer that love to others. Living our lives in such a way as to remain guided by the Spirit is not a way of earning God's love. It's not something that we do out of fear. No, it's the fruit, it's the result of living more fully into his love cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, in our community, it's not a means of earning God's grace and favor, it is us living in God's grace and favor. It's when we're guided by the Spirit in these ways that He begins to bear fruit in our lives. And what does that fruit bearing process look like? Well again, Pastor Tim Keller sheds beautiful light on this question. He says that growth of of that kind of fruit in our life, in the life of the follower of Christ is symmetrical, it's gradual, and it's inevitable. What does he mean? It's symmetrical, it's gradual, and it's inevitable. Well, first, it's symmetrical. I once heard a preacher remark that these are not the fruits of the spirit. This is the fruit of the spirit. So it's not a game where we can all rank ourselves by out of nine, how well are we doing? No, it's these, these attributes, they all make up the fruit of the Spirit working in our midst. The growth is symmetrical. We've all known someone who is naturally more patient or more generous or more kind. But if you want to know if it's the Spirit working in your life, then you'll see yourself growing in all of these things. And yet will it happen at once? No, because that's his next point. It's gradual. It's gradual. He claims that in the same way that growing root vegetables is gradual, growing in the spirit is gradual too. Uh, And I love this analogy because last summer, Jess grew carrots in our garden, and it was a bit of a comical uh, experience because it's hard to grow carrots. You plant them and you water them and nothing seems to happen. So you wait and you water and you wait and you fight the groundhog that came out of nowhere and now lives in your backyard and then you wait But it's really only once you finally harvest those carrots that you can tell, wow, growth was happening. In the same way, Pastor Keller refers to to our growth like that. He says, you'll find yourself, as you walk by the Spirit, you'll find yourself saying, wow, God, I never would have responded to my children with that kind of patience last year. God, I never would have responded to that need in the community with that level of generosity two years ago. It's gradual, it's often beneath the surface, but sometimes we catch a glimpse of what the carrot really looks like, of, of what his fruit in us looks like. So it's, it's symmetrical, it's gradual, and finally, it's inevitable. It may be a long and winding road for many of us, but if we continue to walk by the Spirit, his fruit will overcome our flesh. Keller points to this incredible analogy of, and I can't remember where it is, but there is, a, there is a graveyard where a man was buried beneath a marble slab. And at some point in this process, an acorn had gotten underneath the slab. And slowly and surely that acorn began to grow. And it grew and it cracked the marble. It cracked the very marble slab that was above it, that was on top of it. And this is what like, this is what growth looks like. This is what the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead looks like. Growth is gradual, it's symmetrical, and it's inevitable. So I ask One last time, are we as followers of Christ destined to be slaves to our sin, to hurt and to harm everyone in our lives, to ruin and to destroy? No, no, praise God, no, we are not. The Spirit is living and active in our midst. He is in our hearts, and so, brothers and sisters, do not be dismayed and do not be discouraged. For as we walk in the power of the spirit and in the communion of the saints, we will be made new day by day. The acorn can crack the marble. Christ has overcome the grave. The spirit will overcome our flesh. Amen.